that's one of the biggest differences between us is this, you know, for us to deploy, it's get on a bus for an hour, right? It's, they can get us from home to the meat grinder in like, that, like two seconds. So for Israel, that's, that's why I'm so passionate about this project because I didn't even realize it was like that. I kind of assumed that there was something in place for reservists. Like there would be something for me when I got out. I kind of just thought that was... Yeah, obviously they're going to make sure that, you know, I'm healthy and I work out and I can still shoot well. But the second you get out, you're kind of just like, oh, shit, no, that's all up to me. Welcome back, Bike Tech Nation. This one's pretty cool. Going on international again. This is more of a whiteboard session kind of thing. I guess like a, a live consultation of an episode. We're going to try and solve some problems for our guest here. Guy is originally born in Israel, raised here in the United States in Los Angeles, and then went back to Israel to serve in the Israeli Defense Force. Specifically, a super cool unit called Yahalom, aka Diamond. Um, it's a it's a combat engineering special operations unit. Uh, we're gonna drop a super sweet video about it in the show notes that you can check out did all the cool guy things and then transitioned into reserve service. And that is kind of what led him to us. And he originally reached out to you, Drew. So tell us about how that conversation started. Yeah. So guy was looking for some help setting up effectively a human performance program within his, his Israeli defense force unit. And so some back and forth phone calls and then ultimately uh, got in touch with with Alex as well. And we thought, you know what, as we work through this problem set, it might be cool to just have it recording. So any kind of stuff we discuss, concepts we talk about, solutions we arrive at might be useful for the rest of the audience, which is something we'll touch on here in a little bit. But the the problem at hand was while Guy was an instructor, he realized that the reservists were not capable of things like load, load carriage, obstacle course clearing, stress shooting, the nature of his unit, you know, specialized demolition, et cetera. And there was no, or there is no system in place to manage this group of folks. You know, he talks about this a lot in our conversation. It was shocking to us how few touch points they have with their reservists. So there's no standards. Um, there's really no way to dictate readiness um, they only have that stuff in place for active duty. So again, another one of the reasons why we wanted to, to kind of record this episode is because we do have listeners in the reserve component and Guy is dealing with effectively the exact same problem set. Um, so he is he has been he has been tasked to create this this readiness construct. And, and that's how we arrived at the podcast today. One of the interesting things to me, was it especially like for for this particular group and more largely the Israeli Defense Force, like the readiness of your reservists is a very real thing. And he talks about that in conversation because of the, I mean, Israel is effectively in combat or in conflict all the time. So the way that they set up their military, the way that they set up their reserves is unique and it was cool to kind of tease a lot of that out because you you obviously hear things in the news, but to work through the challenges that he talks about in real time, knowing that there's real world implications was, was kind of a unique experience. And 
this one was super interesting to me. You guys already know I do the reserve thing as well. And the problem set there is very different. And I was already thinking that the American model of reserve service, the old one weekend a month, two weeks a year kind of model is not very many touches, especially when it comes to fitness, which has to be done consistently to see any kind of results. Drew mentioned that the threat is very much there for Israel in a very real way. Well, he talked about, was it like an hour down the road and you're exactly at war? But what surprised me is that despite that, what it takes to serve as a reservist in Israel is a lot less of a commitment. It's on a three-year cycle. Like 15 days every three years is enough to be considered active. And a lot of their people do not even complete that requirement based on other competing things. And they have some problems culturally in terms of like reservists seeing their reserve service as important. It does come back to some themes we talked about, right? When when something is compulsory and everybody has to do it, it gets a little weird. Like all volunteer force is what we have. There's is not so much, but both active and reserve is compulsory in a lot of cases. And that creates some really interesting dynamics in terms of how you get people to care enough to take care of themselves between the times they're there for training. And it's, it's a really hairy problem set. And I think it was a cool way to come at it from a slightly different angle by learning a little bit about the Israeli perspective and some of the things guys trying to do. Yeah. And the last thing real quick too, the last thing that we want to put across with this episode is that we have all the answers. And so you'll hear us mention this in the episode. Uh, We'll mention it here as well. We're putting this out as kind of a, a, a call to arms, so to speak, for the Mops and Mo's community. We'll have all the guy's contact information in the show notes, and he's already kind of greenlit this whole thing. So if if something that we discuss here or if some of the problems that get highlighted kind of ring a bell or, or are within your area of expertise, reach out to Guy because we would love to we would love to make this problem something that everybody over here can kind of contribute to. So again, like you mentioned, a little bit of a different episode. We went into this not well intentionally, not having a plan for where it was going, other than to say, here's the problem at hand. Let's talk through some solutions. And tell us if you like this model of episode, like the kind of collaborative bring a problem to us, we'll discuss it kind of thing. Cause this could be a model for some future stuff that I think would be pretty neat as a way to address the real problems you guys are facing out there. Enjoy. Well, like Alex mentioned, I think this is an awesome one. It's a really cool story, but like two, it's a really cool problem set. And so I think one of the reasons we wanted to do it live was so we could kind of have a, a whiteboard discussion and record it. And then people who are kind of in the same or similar position as you are be like, okay, yeah, like I'm dealing with the same thing. How did they solve that? And who's to say like, this is totally unscripted. So I don't know what endpoint we're going to arrive at, but the stuff that you sent us already is a pretty good starting point. Okay. Awesome. That sounds good. So as a as a place to start, and like full disclosure, I like read the Wikipedia article like 20 minutes ago to get a vague idea of the like mandatory service policies in Israel. But like give us give us a basic background of like who has to serve, how long they have to serve, active and reserve requirements, that kind of stuff. So based on what I know to be accurate as of late, right? From I just got out. Pretty much everyone has to draft unless you're Arab. So the Arabs actually don't have to draft. All the Arabs in the military are a volunteer. 
and there's a lot actually. If you have a medical profile, so you do a medical screen, and if you have a medical profile under a certain level, I think the number is like 45, you also don't draft. So those are kind of the limits on, on who gets drafted. It depends on the, the Arab sector of the, of the country and also your medical profile. And then based on your medical profile, they decide what jobs you're eligible for. So like combat guys are 72 up to the highest is 93 or 91. That's the highest uh, medical profile you can get. And that, those are like the top tier units. And then 72 would be like artillery. So it's still a combat, considered combat role, but it's not, you know, you're not carrying heavy weights and shooting and stuff. So, and I think it's, I mean, that's how Israel did it because they have such a, a small population, such a wide variety of people within that. They have to have like that kind of, that kind of breakup. So you have mandatory service. It's for girls, two years. For boys, it's two years, eight months. That's the mandatory reserve duty is only for certain jobs. I don't know how they actually split it up with that information. A lot of info, also a lot of information isn't available. Just so you know, just so you guys know, they kind of hide. I don't know if they're hiding it, but they just don't have it out there out until age of 35. So, and then you can volunteer to continue doing the reserve duty after the age of 35, but 35 is, that's the cutoff. Um, up until then you're, it's pretty much mandatory. I say pretty much because it's this gray area of, you know, uh, like I was saying, it's 15 days. You're considered, you're considered a, a reservist within three years, and they don't really follow that either. You know, they'll have a guy do 15 days in one year, and he doesn't come back for five years, and then, you know, so it's kind of, it's not organized that way. I was looking at it too. There's a bunch of caveats depending. So, like, if it's a woman and she has a child, she's immediately exempted. Rules are different if you're a physician because, like, obviously physicians are valuable in certain roles. Rules are different for certain specialties and roles. There's, there's like, the broad answer, and then there's, like, it gets a little bit more specific as you get into, like, certain situations and requirements yeah. and stuff. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was trying to answer. Like, oh, wait, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of weird ways you could get out of the Army or get into it. Like, I'm an American who came all the way, you know what I'm saying, and, and drafted, so... There's a lot of ways to get out of it, a lot of ways to get into it. I actually, guys who drafted with me got out early because they hated it so much. <laughs> I, you know, I re-enlisted, so that's, that's, you know, I don't know what that's it, but you got that whole thing. So, yeah, but the average age is, like, you guys draft when they're around 18, 19. Some of them do, like, army prep courses until they're 19, and then they're in until about 21, most of them, uh, girls. Does the fact that you have – I'm just thinking of, like, if I'm growing up and I'm – 16 17 18 does the fact that you have this draft like looming over you does that change being a teenager does that make sense like i'm thinking if i'm if i'm going to get obligated into service like i'm probably training a little bit differently thinking about the next couple of years a little bit differently did you get a sense of that even though you, you like you said you moved there from the u.s um i mean my, my story is a little different because i was yeah i guess i raised there i'm also you know, weird in that sense from the time I was a kid. I'm like, I'm going to be a commando. That's definitely what I'm going to do. I just like <laughs> too many movies or something. I'm like eight years old, I was fucking jumping from couch to couch, swinging <laughs> off stuff, crawling in the mud. I liked hard things. I was like, yeah, the more suffering, the better. So that was just for me. I kind of knew that no matter what, I was, that was something I really wanted. But, you know, just being around my friends, because, you know, the teams, when you're in a small team, especially you need to get really close. These guys are like my brothers. One of them is my roommate, um, actually, right now. And, but talking to them, I actually got to talk to them about this kind of thing. And they, because you grow up surrounded by that, that terror factor, you know, like no matter you hear a bus, a bus blew up in Jerusalem or a guy got stabbed in Netanya, which is in a random city, you, you hear about that kind of stuff and, and it does affect them in the sense there, there's a sense of, you know, 
there's people around me trying to kill me and it's my job. It's going to be my turn eventually to protect everyone else. And that's a, that's a huge part actually of what I encountered with the other uh, fighters. You know, it's hard for me also to do some of these translations for English, but the other you know, fighters, they, they have this similar mindset of it's just a responsibility in the same sense of, you know, helping someone on the side of the road, like you stop and help them because you're supposed to, it's like the right thing to do. It's the same sense. But then you have a lot of guys who don't feel that way. It's kind of like, oh, the government's fault that we live in this situation and we shouldn't have to serve and that whole thing. But the most of them are uh, feel that sense of responsibility. But yeah, it definitely looms over them from a pretty young age. Like, I'm going to have that level of responsibility at one point. But on the other side, you get to walk around with a gun and you get a pretty cool uniform and it's a status thing too. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So looks yeah. good on social media <laughs> it does yeah you know you won't you'll any look up any idf soldier you'll find a picture of him with his gun shirtless somewhere it's in there you know you just got to find it <laughs> i love that so it's not yeah. too unlike yeah. uh, the united states no no it's pretty similar in that sense i'm sure yeah i yeah nothing nothing ever changes i i i don't think it's on social media or anything but it like it's in my like save pictures or whatever if you go back far enough are you shirtless like my, with a my, gun? I have no shirtless with a gun <laughs> picture, but I do have a picture from like the first day they gave me a gun. And it's just like a picture of the gun. Like, oh, yeah. dope. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, actually my unit, my unit had a gun that only like three units in the army got. And it's this like really cool silenced uh, micro Tavor. I don't know if you guys know that that bullpup Israeli weird futuristic looking rifle. So we had the short nine millimeter versions with suppressors on them and like only two units in the army. So the second I got mine, I got to do the course. I sent everyone that shit. I sent videos of me do shooting it and I like sent it to everybody, but I didn't upload it. We weren't allowed to upload anything, but uh, I got those videos too, for sure. That's <laughs> awesome. Okay. So we've talked <laughs> being badass, taking gun pictures with your shirt off simultaneously. How did they arrive at this 15, I think you said 15 days within three years. So that's five days a year you're considered an active reservist. Yeah. How, I mean, that's Alex, what is it for, for guard over here? So it, it varies a lot. Like the latest drama is that the guard has been used like way more than they should have because of like recent domestic missions and things like that. And there's a lot more deployments than you might expect, but generally speaking, the classic line is uh, one weekend a month plus two weeks a year of annual training that, that varies a little bit person to person, but you're still talking that's like 40 plus days a year. And like, even that is really hard to like train people to a sufficient standard with that limited time. Like, especially when we talk about fitness, which is all I talk about now in my reserve capacity, I, there is no physical training program that you can do two days a month and see any results if they aren't doing stuff on their personal time between training. So like trying to create a fitness culture in an environment where you don't see people frequently is extremely challenging. Yeah. Guy, walk us through, walk us through kind of what you're thinking as the initial, your sort of initial solution or your initial approach to this, this idea of like Alex mentioned, creating this fitness culture. Well, before that, Drew and I already know, cause you've emailed us this stuff, but like lay out for the audience, the challenge you are faced with now. Cause it's a little different than when you were serving actively. Right. So, I'll try, I'll do my best to, to, cause usually this conversation I'm having in Hebrew lately. So I'm like, <laughs> haven't had a chance to explain this in English. You can I have it in Hebrew. Minute. We'll just have no clue. What you're saying. 
<laughs> no, actually, in the in my badass PowerPoint I made for the army when I went to go show them this, I had a mission statement in there that was kind of like, amazing. The first ten slides were just why we need this thing. I I put in there all this stuff that basically at the moment there's nothing tracking them. Like there's a total gap between the Ministry of Health and the military. So Israel is kind of the semi-socialist capitalist state where everyone, you know, we all have access to healthcare. It's not, and we all have this app also for our healthcare. And so these guys do have access to those kinds of, you know, tracking methods and all, and all that, but they don't, it's not connected to the military in any way. There is no culture of real health and fitness within the Israeli military. It's kind of like, it's still at the level of you got to be hard mentally and that's it. Like least amount of sleep is the most badass guy, that whole thing. So my my was my mission was realizing that seeing that that continued into the reserves. It wasn't something that stopped in the active duty, which is only two years, eight months. You see that the, guy, the guys carried along a, a lot of the feelings they had towards exercise and health that they kind of acquired in the military, which was we do it because we have to for now to pass some weird tests and then we're going to spend the rest of the time hanging out and hoping that we don't have to do it again. And if anything physical or health related if that makes any sense. So my mission statement was just to design a system for the benefit of the reservists that the army is going to subsidize. And the idea is creating a system that's not only for our reservists to, to track their health and their, their, their physical ability to actually fight in a war, because that's something that they're in deep denial about right now, but also to create an incentive to become a fighter again. Because if you look at the trends of guys who are drafting to the army because we talked about who has to draft but we didn't actually talk about how guys get out of having to be fighters because it's a certain number right there if you had like a certain knee injury that you paid a doctor to sign for you and you're out like now you don't have to be a fighter anymore a lot of guys don't want to be fighters because they don't see it as there's no return on investment for them like what's my return on but that whole motivation to be a uh, defend the jewish nation is kind of falling falling hard if you look at the numbers if the last i checked reservist fighters like the guys who can actually pick up a gun and fight listed is four hundred thousand. this is public uh, around four hundred thousand. but active the guys who did 15 days in the last three years is only 200 so it's actually half of the reservists who are the guys showing up even just to train and you have this attitude of oh at the next war i'll show up and it would be like a party and it's like no that's just not how it works and that's what happened in, in 2006 like there's a precedence for this this happened already in 2006, we had a war with Lebanon with a terrorist group Hezbollah. There, you had reservists who, you know, I, I can't get into specific about this, about whatever, because about the mission specifically, because I don't actually know what details are allowed. But long story short, they couldn't, they couldn't achieve their objective of claiming this mount, of claiming this hill, because the reservists in that battalion simply couldn't make it up the hill. The packs were too heavy, and they'd been walking too long. They had to turn around. And that was one, you know, guys came out of that and they wrote and it was in the news about how the, the government didn't prepare them for what they were going to face in Lebanon. Um, it, I don't know. I don't remember the question. <laughs> this is good stuff. We'll, we'll get to the question eventually, but this is all important background, right? So if there, there's definite similarities and definite differences here to the American experience, right? We talk in like an abstract sense about how our military is like representative of our population on a whole. It's just kind of reflective of the population you recruit from in Israel it very literally is extremely reflective of the population because everybody has some degree of commitment to serve. And it sounds very much like once that two years, two years, eight months expires, they go back to being like basically identical to the population because there's no consistency of training and things like that. And we've seen that in our history. We haven't had a draft in a long time in the U S but 
each of the times we did have to draft people, a smaller and smaller percentage of the people drafted were determined to be physically prepared to actually serve and more and more people had to be sent home. And it sounds like you're dealing with a very similar phenomenon there. So it's, it's interesting how much is the same. Like we're, we're dealing with very, very similar problems. I actually had a question about that. If that's all right. Yeah, go for it. This is the time. Yeah. So I was actually going to ask because, you know, and the H2F, like if you look at H2F as a, I know this isn't the H2F podcast or anything, but you guys have, you know, well, experience with that and, and looking at that as a program, just a whole way of approaching a soldier and like reservist active duty doesn't really, to me, it doesn't really make a difference, but just having that program in place, is that you think applicable to, to every military? Like, should every military have this? Cause I'm trying to argue to certain people that this is something that in my opinion, every company should have, not even just the military. So I'll, I'll answer from my point of view and then Drew can answer from his point of view because we probably have slightly different thoughts on it. One, I think in, a, in an ideal world, it's the kind of stuff that should be available to everyone. Like you start hearing things about lifestyle medicine and things like that. Like giving people access to the knowledge and resources to take care of themselves is really what all this is. So I think like, yes, in an idealized situation. However, in in my reserve capacity, I have to run around teaching H2F to units that are not going to get the resources or at least anytime soon, meaning they have to figure out how to quote unquote, like do this holistic health and fitness thing without having a, like dedicated professionals to it. And I don't know if they're like, when you start figuring out, like, sadly, everything comes back to money to a certain degree. So you have to be able to articulate what the savings are as a result of the program. And it's it's going to be really expensive to hire full-time professionals for something like this. And we don't really have a model yet to hire part-time professionals to service part-time service members. It's it's going to be really hard to figure out resourcing models. I think I've, I've said this before, if we could get farther upstream and get more of this information out to people when they're in like middle school and high school and things like that, then we wouldn't need to spend so much on the back end and we'd probably see a better effect. Uh, but yeah, I would love to see more access to proactive approaches to health and fitness for yeah any military or any human, arguably, because they should be active and physical and stuff like that. Yeah, I think um, the utopian answer is that you wouldn't need it because in middle school, high school, even elementary school, like you would just have this culture of health and wellness that doesn't exist. So in the real world, yeah, I know. I think, I think that you should have some form of, of this type of embedded service in any, in any military organization, the same way that you would expect, you know, if you walk into any football program or, or soccer program or basketball, like you expect some level of, of training and, and whether they have a really fancy gym and like a full staff is a little bit dependent upon, like Alex mentioned money. But I think at least in the United States at this point in time with strength and conditioning and with what we've seen and how that can help out in a sporting sense, you just kind of expect that to be part of the the package. And I think that, you know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, it'll probably, if we do it well, it'll probably be the same in the military. Now, with all that being said, I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting um, puzzle to solve because, and this is something that Alex and I talk about quite a bit, especially off air, 
the system within which they're trying to put these things in place is designed to profit off of these things not working. Case in point, you know, for for our guys over here, you can rack up financial rewards for being injured later in, on in your career. And so, you know, simultaneously, there's efforts to put people in place to keep you healthier, longer, um, you know, pass whatever test it is you have to pass, be less stressed, sleep better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, there's a financial reward for you effectively failing those metrics. And so I think it's it's hard to answer the question of should every military unit have this? The answer to that question is yes. The bigger question is how can we rework the system so that these programs we put in place actually do what they're supposed to do instead of fighting this uphill battle, which is like a long answer, but hopefully that makes sense. I'll offer one small nugget too. And we're, we're actually going to crack into this one in a podcast that we're recording in about a month. Um, but there are there are trends towards providing versions of this in like corporate America, like some of the bigger companies that have the resources to do it, employ contract strength and conditioning professionals. They employ mental health professionals. They have gyms in the building where people work and allow them time during their day to go train in those spaces. And the stuff is just good for people in general, not just service members. Definitely. Yeah. And it's honestly, like you mentioned, the argument always comes down to money, right? So from like a leadership standpoint, if you can convince folks or not even convince them, but just show them like, Hey, this, this is what we're spending annually on, on this type of injury. This is what we're, you know, for this, this, and this, then it becomes, I think a very easy argument to say, Hey, we should probably just take a fraction of that and put it into some of the things we talked about over the phone, like training technologies or just having an effective test. You start to see those costs go down pretty quickly. That that's great. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly, the the arguments in my unit they really want this to happen but it seems as if nobody wants to do anything to make it happen so it feels like oh this is a great idea someone should do that kind of situation <laughs> and i'm sitting over here like yeah i need help i have to get we need we need a dietitian we need a, a psychologist we need a team to make to make a team and uh it's been hard getting people to jump on that train but when I do come at them with kind of what I learned a lot, especially from this podcast, but just recently just studying in school, is that biopsychosocial coming at it that way, that really does provide incentive even for, in my opinion, the guys I'm training, it gives them more, inspires them to train because they realize how complicated it actually can be, but there's a way to do it. And that kind of gets them going and they're really interested all of a sudden. My friend now is obsessed with his HRV just because we I told him, stop smoking cigarettes for 10 weeks and see what happens. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> And uh, just small stuff like that, you know, how, how things can, how small things, small things all together, making a huge change. That's what I'm trying to do in a, in a military that is, is, you know, you guys talk a lot about the path dependency, but I would say like the IDF might be one of the best militaries at path dependency. Cause one of the most common things you'll, you'll ask, you ask, why are we doing this? Well, this is the way we've always done this. That's why we're doing it that way. And that's a common and it's an acceptable answer. It's not like an unacceptable answer which is a question I had is that how different is that from what you guys are experiencing when you come to commanders in the military there and you tell them, I realize you guys are used to running at five 30, no matter what you did that week, every Sunday, but this is not a good idea anymore. How do you change that? How do you stop that? I, like I said before, I was, I was reading up on Israeli reserve service and stuff. And there's like whole articles on like the, the relationship between like reserve duty in the Israeli ethos and like positive culture or like popular culture. And 
like folklore around reserve service and stuff. So you can tell it's like very ingrained kind of stuff. And that's, I mean, we deal with plenty of the same things. I'll, I'll, I'll give Drew a, a hack at it because he's the one who was like inserted into it the most harshly <laughs> coming from like no experience on the uniform side, just like butting immediately into like all the resistance. So, well, I think, so, I mean, the path dependency piece thing, I think that we're seeing at a, I would argue at like a, a senior leader level, you're seeing a little bit more acceptance of this concept because I think for those folks, it's, it really doesn't go that much further than a good idea on a, on a PowerPoint. And so, you know, you do the brief and it's like, Hey, we're going to put these people here and we're going to do this. And it's going to look like that. And they're like, this is sweet. Like, go ahead and do it. The harder shift is for the folks that are actually kind of on the ground you know, kind of middle NCO type, the folks that historically have, you know, either run PT or have a vested interest in what PT looks like, that's where it can be hit or miss. So for some people, you know, they just kind of inherently get it. And and for me, historically in my career, I have seen traditionally folks that have grown up playing sports or been around organized sports, understand these concepts pretty quickly. Like, Hey, we're going to inject a strength coach. He's going to take over PT for you guys. Okay, cool. Yeah, I get it. Totally cool. For for people that kind of are more subscribed to the, we'll call it the traditional military mindset of like just running and like the suck factor and just do the thing, that can become a little bit more challenging. And, and like you mentioned, I think in your question, it's like, oh, Thursdays, like we always rock. Well, why? Because we always rock on Thursdays. It's like, well, what if you didn't? Or what if you did it like every other week? Like, no, nah, no, nah, we always rock on Thursdays. Okay, cool. So for some of the folks that I work with, working around those constraints becomes kind of your entry point. And so, you know, maybe it's that you're not flipping a switch and now I'm writing all your programming. It's, hey, I'm going to take care of like Monday, Tuesday, and we'll just get a feel for what that looks like. You guys can keep doing what you've been doing for however long the rest of the week. And usually what happens after a period of time is they start to realize that the stuff that you're giving them makes a lot of sense. And the stuff that they've been doing makes no sense at all. So I, I, you know, I I say that having now been in this industry for almost 10 years and saying that like, Oh, it feels like things are changing for now 10 years. But I do think that as these embedded programs grow, you will start to see a shift in what it means to conduct PT in a military setting. That's a good, I mean, good answer. Great answer. <laughs> it felt really long. So hopefully there was something in there that was worthwhile. <laughs> no, that's because, because I'm, I just, I'm trying to arm myself because I haven't met a lot of, like I said, like everyone wants this, but no one's trying to, a very few people are actually jumping on board to, to help me out. And it's something that I realize I can't do on my own. And so I'm trying to, to find, I want to know what people are going to say no to before I even, you know, come at them with these things. Cause at the moment we I'm not even designing tra- training programs because we're still trying to figure out how we're even going to measure and maybe that bring it back to how I was supposed to explain what I'm doing and that whole measurement thing from the <laughs> from the email. Yeah, good chance to do that. Yeah, walk through the metrics that you've created. And for context, I guess, for people that are listening to this, like you've already put together what you think is kind of a good assessment um, or series of assessments. And I think talking through that and then figuring out what makes sense for your your situation is probably goodness okay so i'll break it up to to like i sent like i sent in the email i broke it into uh seven health met- health metrics that we're going to track and take and seven physical metrics and then three what i, what I call job specific ones because 
um, you know, construct versus you know the phase validity, and I realized that that's something that our reserve is specific, specifically in these in the special units. If you try to test them with some like carry this heavy weight from here to there, they're they're gonna look at you like the hell you want from me. You know, they they really they want to know that what they're doing has been done somewhere else first, and there's a lot going behind it. They don't just want to do random stuff because because it's a huge part of this reserve thing, especially in Israel. These guys come from their houses in the morning. They come, they maybe do a week, maybe a couple of days, maybe even one day of reserve duty, and then they go straight back home. And it's like, it never happened. So this is a, a huge part of the, the the psychological part of it, of what reserve duty really, what does it mean to be a reservist in Israel? And so based on that, um, that we're only going to get them when we get them, the seven health metrics are just the vitals, blood pressure, resting heart rate, waist-hip ratio, height and weight, grip strength, the I just I from what I saw in an NSCA uh, YouTube video, a guy presented on sleep. The old it's called like sleep, the ultimate factor, something like that. And he put in there that the athletic sleep behavior questionnaire, and I looked into it, and it was pretty cool. The ACSM Par Q plus, just as a because they don't even ask the stuff of our reservists when they show up if they've had a you know a heart attack in the last year. We have no idea. Step steps per day based on actually what I've learned recently. And the functional movement screen as a health metric, just making sure these guys don't, you know, scream from pain when they go down to a squat. So those are the seven health metrics. Should I go over the physical ones? You guys want to pick this one apart right now? Go all the way through. Because I know once we start picking things apart, we'll go down rabbit holes and we may never come back. So go all the way through and then we'll go back. <laughs> we'll go back to the top. We've done this. We've done that before. <laughs> okay. So those were the seven health metrics, uh, the physical seven metrics. The first one is the motor control screen by FMS. And it's just basically a one-arm push-up and a pistol squat, if anyone doesn't know what that is. Broad jump, uh, five-meter rope climb, uh, T-test, hand-release push-ups, stole that from you guys, the ACFD, and then the 300-yard, 274-meter shuttle run, and the beep test. So those are the physical metrics I was looking for. And the job-specific assessment, just bare bone, what do we need these guys to be able to do? Uh, a 3K with 40% of their body weight, in under an hour, under 60 minutes. What we call the IDF stress shoot, which is basically a 300 meter run. It's usually a 300 meter sprint. And then you have to shoot 50 meters, hit a pretty small target in under a minute and 45 seconds, that whole thing. But the, the shooting, you have like you have to change magazines. I don't know if there's a similar thing in the US military. That's the stress shoot. And then an accurate grenade throw from prone, kneeling and standing. So those are health, physical, and job specific. So is the idea here that you would have them, like if they report to duty, this would be kind of the first thing that they do each each time? Well, what we're doing right now is every time um, a group, it's kind of hard the way they explain, but let's say a, a battalion comes in for training, I guess, I don't know, the, the exact comparison, like I guess I'll call it battalion. They come in for training. Right now we would get all these measurements done. And the, the goal is get everyone's numbers. And then we break it up into a once a year kind of thing where every guy does every one of these tests once a year. That would be ideal. That's the, that's the plan at the moment that all these would be once a year. They wouldn't necessarily all be at the same time during the year. Well, that's something I thought about when I was making, and that's a question to you guys that, you know, two of these are questionnaires of the, out of the health right? Or even three, it's like something that they could report from being far away, because a lot of our reservists, 
they fly for a year. They don't come back because now there's like my guy from my team is studying in Canada. He's studying film there, but he still comes for reserve duty once every two years. So he could report back to us at least part of it. You know, it wouldn't be all of the stuff we need, but I feel like having something in that case would be better than nothing and just keeping contact with him. That's that's that was one of the the parts of that, that I was thinking about. And then I guess the my follow on would be. Well, we'll get to the so what here in a second, but like. If if I if I'm a reservist and I come in, I think you mentioned he, he, your buddy comes in like once every two years. Yeah, for example, yeah, just uh, would you is is there are you envisioning something in place where you would like compare each time? I because I, I guess what I'm what I'm trying to wrap my head around is if I don't see people very often and I give a pretty comprehensive battery of tests, seven seven three so seventeen tests. How many, and I guess this is, a, this is a question back to you, how many of those tests do you envision doing something with, if that makes sense? Like training right. off of, wh- which of those tests are going to enact a response? I think that it's not necessarily one of the tests versus another. It was mm-hmm. just, I wanted to get as much of what, from what I learned, and, and I could be definitely wrong. We don't need all this stuff, and that's why I'm, that's why I'm talking to yeah. you guys. But in my head, it was, these are pretty fundamental, easy things. Like I said, two of those are questionnaires filled out from wherever. One of them steps per day is on there. Just really easy stuff that's easy to track. And then we build a folder. Um, and after talking to you about the the Heroic app and just having your own personal page and an app or however it will be, and you get to see your own progress from your release, You know how you were in the military and all the way till age 35 and see how your VO2 max changed, how your push ups changed how all that stuff could change and you could have that um and that's one of the incentives i was trying to i'm trying to get across is that it, it actually pays to be a fighter because these the government's going to invest in you now long term because they're going to be keep using you um it kind of pays to be a fighter because now you you get this kind of personal trainer in your phone constantly telling you know keeping track of your health and your fitness and or trying to trying to at least and getting giving you tips on sleep and nutrition and all that kind of stuff. So it was more about the the package of we care about your health, we care about your fitness, and we care that you can actually do your job. But the, the test in between, I, I can't tell you one or the other matters to me more. So I'll I'll ask a fast question, and then I'll talk about like the mindset I use when I'm thinking about what assessments to employ. Uh, the the question is, and this gets into like how much can we deliver remotely and things like that. In your email, you said that steps are easy because most of them have Garmin's from their time on active service. Is that an item that is issued to people that they keep with them? Is a Garmin watch? It's not issued, but most teams get one. I can't. It's like it's okay. like they somehow get donations, but yeah, most of them have. Okay, so it's like a pretty widespread thing that you can assume that like a majority of people have some kind of watch capable of doing basic right. like Definitely. GPS, heart rate, steps, stuff like that. Okay, because that. That opens the door to a lot of potential other things in terms of whether you deliver this when they're with you or whether they can do parts of this off on their own. But before we go down that road too much, I'll I'll talk through and like Drew will probably like slightly agree and slightly disagree on this, but there's basically three factors I think about when looking at whether an assessment matters or like is appropriate. And I used to only use two of these. The third one is one I've added kind of recently. It gets back to what you were talking about a second ago. So the the first two, it should measure something relevant to the task you're trying to like predict their performance on. So you should be able to like tie it to something mission related, right? 
That's the mm-hmm. construct validity type of stuff. It should also facilitate program design. So it should be it should be structured in a way that their results on that assessment mean I can like design a good workout based on it. It's so like if I if I have them do like a one mile assessment, that's like in a range where I can probably do a pretty good job of programming interval workouts for them and an okay job of programming distance workouts for them based on that single metric. A lot harder to extrapolate that kind of stuff from a 300 yard shuttle run, even though a 300 yard shuttle run is a great assessment in terms of construct validity. It's got trade-offs in terms of, can you program off of it terribly well? I'm not saying it's good or bad, just like those are the the lenses I would look at it from up front. And then the last one that I've added on, and I've, I've shouted out Nate, like every five episodes of this podcast, but shout out Nate Palin hey, Nate. for talking about uh, the, like there is value to including something on an assessment just for the sake of showing the participants that you care about that aspect of fitness. Right. Like, even if you're not necessarily going to program off of it, even if it's not that like easy to draw a causal line for how it influences performance and thing, I just, you know, it's kind of important and you want to make sure somebody who's taking your test sees it as important as well, including it on the assessment can do that a little bit. I think the rope climb falls under that category for me. Just like a, because when I look at the physical component of this, I, and again, I could be off here because it's a, it's a different culture, but the physical and job specific tests are the ones that I think are going to, those are the more, more important ones maybe because that's, what's going to get folks excited or not excited about doing this. And I think as I kind of envision this in my head, what would be really cool is if you had some sort of platform where, you know, if I'm that guy in Canada or I'm in, it sounds like anybody can be scattered anywhere. Really. I can kind of plug into this, this app or whatever, and, and see where I stand relative to everyone else. And so, well, yes, I may formally take these tests, you know, every so often when I check in for reserve duty, there's really no reason why I shouldn't be able to, you know, if you do the technology, right, I shouldn't be able to see, you know, what are the top performers for my age group job, whatever, what are they doing on the mile run or on the, the broad jumper? I mean, if you do that, you open yourself up to a lot of potential manipulation. Like people could just make up fake scores, um, especially if they're on the other side of the world. But I, I think that the one question that you've you've asked early on, like how do you how do you create this culture of people wanting to be fit and wanting to chase fitness? I think by gamifying some of these things. So you've got the health the, the health thing to me is like. Those are the the need to haves. I don't know if you need to have all of them, like the steps per day. I don't, I don't know what that gets you. And when you start to have, when you start to pull things from devices that capture it automatically, like Garmin steps per day, like if I go ride my bike, a stationary bike, it counts as steps and I hit my step count. And so like the inaccuracies that I think are inherent to like a steps per day thing probably outweigh the validity that you're going to get from capturing that metric. It's not to say it's bad. It's just like you have to account for the constraints. But the other things I think are stuff that you could you could collect from any any visit that anybody takes to the doctor. They would just log it into the the framework. The FMS thing. I mean, you know, people are going to have different opinions on that. I like his. I like the way he articulated it in the email, and he mentioned it on here. There's there's lots of debate about FMS. FMS themselves have like kind of scaled back their promises on what they can predict with their assessment. 
but the way you articulated it, you're not, you don't really care about their score. You care about detecting any events they get zeros on. And for those who have not screened people with FMS before a zero is not based on your range of motion. It's based on whether you have pain trying to get into that position. And so you're basically using FMS as an indirect health history kind of thing, um, making sure you don't overlook things they haven't reported in terms of injuries in their past. Exactly. Yeah. But then if you're, if you're doing that, would you be, I guess, guy, this is a question for you. I mean, this would be folks doing this on their own, right? Can you like self doing an FMS on yourself is kind of a weird concept. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't, I didn't plan on them doing the FMS, like the, the waist hip ratio height, the waist hip ratio and the FMS and the grip strength, I'd want them to come in. Okay. And it's also an opportunity, you know, but it's not come into me. Like I also, that's another part of this. I, I probably should have said in the beginning was I also designed this in a way that in my opinion, any certified, even though the differences are, are pretty big between an Israeli sort of personal trainer versus an American one, the, the standards are just way lower here. But either way, you know, as someone who has some level of certification in personal training or fitness should be able to, to do this for someone. And and that was the idea that they can go to any personal trainer, any gym. It doesn't have to be military. And they, like you said, they have the app and they could cheat, but there's no incentive because they're not going to get anything from cheating. Like it's not. And that's another part of this reserve duty is that if this is not voluntary and it's also in a weird way, not mandatory. So it's this, like I said, it's a gray area of actually having to do it versus not doing it, showing up versus not showing up. And so if a guy, you know, if I give him a test and I tell him, if you fail, you you can't do it, he's going to be like, great, I'm out. You know, I'm going to Costa Rica, I'm surfing. <laughs> and we have to prevent that, right? So that was like, oh man, how do I design an assessment with guys who technically have to do this? And if they fail, like, what am I going to do? Tell them don't show up. That's their that's their goal in the end. Some of them, so it had to be. Well, no, this this has to be an incentive to want to be healthy. It's not even like I don't really care how many push ups you can do. It's just take this as a, a chance to understand that the amount of push ups you can do, or the you know maybe not the amount of push ups specifically, Alex, but the amount of push ups you do might say something about your health, right? Your grip strength might say something about your health, or the zeros, right? And that was the thing with FMS was that. I'm, that's maybe one of the only things I care about the programming. Cause if I have a guy and I'm, I see in his, he has three zeros and like ankles and hips, then I probably, he should go see a physical therapist and I'm not a physical therapist. I don't need to be one to do that screen either, but that might be an opportunity to, to include someone in that team and get him the help he needs. Yeah. I think the, the challenge here. So first off, I'll, I'll say like upfront, my goal with this would be to scale it down a little bit. I think there's a lot of events here. If we can get to fewer, that's probably going to settle easier with people and you're going to have like an easier time pitching all this stuff. The The real challenge is not necessarily the assessment itself. It's what happens with the assessment. Because if, if people start to perceive that this is just like a check the box thing and nothing actually happens because of it, then they're instantly not going to care. If people perceive that it's being used to make sure the right people get the right kind of attention and like resources are being made available for them and stuff. You're going to get a ton more buy-in. Um, so I think some of those questionnaires they can use remotely are easy. Height and weight is a complicated one. It kind of depends on if they know, like, is, is there a scoring scale associated with it? And do they know that there's a scoring scale associated with it? Cause that can create a lot of stuff. We haven't gone too deep into it on this podcast yet. Um, but like height, weight, 
tape kind of stuff is associated with really, really high rates of disordered eating and body image issues and all sorts of things. So you got to be smart about that. Uh, but I think the the sleep behavior questionnaire, the park you, that stuff seems like it makes sense. Grip strength, pretty straightforward. And all that stuff you can do pretty quickly if you have a team conducting an assessment and all that stuff, especially if the screenings are done on their own time separately. In the in the physical and job specific, that's where I would want to kind of triage it and try and find the most relevant ones um, and like the easiest to proctor and easiest to keep track of and stuff like that. Because they do like, I don't know how it is for you guys. For our soldiers, one of the hardest cultural hurdles to get over is teaching people that there's a better way to train than just repetitively doing the test events over and over. Cause if you, if you publish this assessment, you're going to have a certain population of people who like want to dominate this assessment specifically. And then all they're going to do are broad jumps, five meter rope climbs and T tests. And that's not exactly what we want them to go for. Um, so like considering those assessments is a challenge as well. I don't know if that answered any questions or not. Well, I'm sitting here just like rewriting your tests for you <laughs> on a notebook. Well, I, so Alex got me thinking with the mile run piece. Cause like that, I think, you know, talking about stuff that you can program off of relatively automatically. Like, I think if you had folks just doing a mile run, it's pretty easy to pull. And again, this kind of gets into the tech conversation, but you could pretty easily set up a system where like, if I do my mile run, I get, you know, a chart that has my paces and recommended training, you know, whatever, the rope climb I would leave because like we mentioned, sometimes it's just important to have like a pass fail. That's so people know that it's something that they need to be able to do. And I think rope climbing is, is good for that. I added, and I don't know what this looks like, but the consideration of a strength component to it, I know for with the army right now, it's the deadlift. Um, I don't necessarily think that's what it needs to be, but what I have seen in terms of like second and third order effects, just by injecting a strength component to a physical fitness test is that the culture around training changes because now I have to think about resistance training. Whereas before, you know, you could, you could get away with not even touching a weight and still pass whatever push up, sit up, chin up, pull up test, whatever branch the military was doing. So I think that's important less for the maximal strength component and more for just like, Hey, this matters. One we did to answer that one, we did it when I was at the fitness school and it, it checks two of the boxes I had for assessment goals. Um, and it's good. It's, it's kind of a more field expedient version of lower body strength assessment or lower body muscle endurance. In this case is we would do goblet squats at a fixed percentage of your body weight for max reps. Um, and that way you can use either a dumbbell or a kettlebell, whatever's available. So you can kind of take it in different facilities and practice it wherever you are. The, the downfall of it is that it's very hard to program off of the results of that. It's not a one rep max. You can take a percentage of, but it does now tell them that we care about lower body strength and it's an exercise that is not very equipment specific and doesn't require a whole lot of technique. A goblet squat is most people are going to end up in a pretty good movement pattern regardless of whether they've been coached a lot or not. Yeah. But then don't you run into limitate? Like, okay, so now I have to weigh myself and then I have to take this percentage and then I have to find a weight that matches that. And do I round up or do I round down? Yeah. I mean, you could always give them a chart that just tells them, and that's what we did. Like we, 
it because we, we were doing it in our facility. Our, our friend in Canada can do. Like that's yeah. the guy I have in my head right now is our 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 buddy up in Canada. Like, is he going to have access to this chart? I, I don't know. I, these are these are questions I don't have the answer to. Versus if you say, "Hey, do a deadlift," but then like, what? I don't. Yeah, I don't know. What weight do they do? Is it a winner at max? Is it not a winner at max? I don't know. Guy, jump in here. I mean, it's an it's an important time to talk about. Also, one of the wicked problems I have with these reservists is that they are they do not want to work out when they come to reserve duty. That's not what they're trying to do. Like if you tell them come run a mile, they're just not going to come. They'll find a way out of that. Mo I would say not all of them, but most of them are not going to do that. And it's also with this this feeling of kind of time served. Like I did my ma mandatory. I was there. I'm like, I don't need this reserve duty. I'm doing them a favor every time I show up. And that's kind of the feeling you get from them too. And that's why we would say as instructors, the hardest group to train are reservists. Because you, they are kind of doing you a favor that they're there because they have families and they they work in high tech. You know that they're not. What are they doing? Shooting an M4 in the middle of the desert it doesn't make a lot of sense. That they, they go from Tel Aviv to the desert in the same in three hours. It's it's a different scenario. Whereas in the United States, I, I mean, I've I've been there, but from what I assume, the the base of deployment's very far from home. Like you go to your deployment, you're there. Uh, something I heard Dave Grossman talk about. It blew my mind with that also. But they're so far from home. And then they have this time before they get to come back. But in Israel, it's one after the other. You go to reserve duty in the morning and you come back. So we have this problem of trying to get them to do anything that's physically daunting, like a mile run or even the beep test. Like some guys are like, the fuck is this beep test? I'm not trying to, <laughs> I'm not trying to run for 12 minutes. What's that about? And, <laughs> and you know, the pushups, like I had my friends just I was like, how many pushups do you guys do in a minute? And then they had a competition. And that's, I think with this gamifying. And I, I think I heard you say it somewhere else too was that's what I was trying to piece together was, okay, I can't really program for them. They live all over the place. We need to know what's going on with them because if not, we're not actually ready. We're kind of just guessing in a sense of these guys show up once every few years and okay, yeah, they can fight. So it's something that says, okay, these people are not dead on a couch somewhere. Like they can move, they can climb a rope, they can jump their height, right? That's like, the, they can jump their height in the broad jump at least. And we have these, and what I really love that idea of the floating average, that this is an average of these people. It's not like they have to meet this. It's more, let's create competition within these guys who are competitive naturally. There's ex-special forces, all they, they want to compete against each other. And you show that, oh, the commander is actually the fattest guy in the team because he's not doing this right and he's not doing that. And they would see that because they would all be a part of this average, right? They would see who's doing the best, who's doing the leaderboard kind of situation. But it wouldn't, and but we don't have this thing of saying you have to have a minimum. We can't have that because then I'll lose every, I'll lose a lot of guys, right? Yeah. So that's that's an issue that that I have. I'll share a couple quick data points. Um, I I found this as I was looking at stuff like right before the episode. This article published literally three days ago in the Jerusalem Post, and it's titled "Top Defense Officials Debate If IDF Reserves Are Ready or in Chaos," and it. Like it's a it's a conversation framed around a survey they did of 1,100 reservists, and a couple of the results from the survey stood out for me. Let me see if I can find them. They're at the bottom of the article here. 66% um, of reservists feel they are viewed by Israeli society as suckers for continuing to serve, such that employers, spouses, and university professors don't like have lost respect for reservists and do not support them when they miss work, family events, or classes. 84% found that that their pay was either partially or extremely insufficient 65 percent were unhappy with their equipment 40 percent do not show up when called and yeah just it's there's there's a lot of challenges in terms of like 
trying to get people excited about this or proud of it that are going to be outside your control. I'll, I'll throw out one and I'm curious about both your thoughts and Drew's thoughts on this. Um, maybe like scaling back our desire for making it the perfect assessment, so to speak, in terms of it being like valid in terms of construct validity and face validity and things like that, or useful for programming off of like realizing that we're up against these hurdles, maybe making a much higher priority being like the fun factor or the competition factor, and maybe designing some like competitive event kind of workouts that incorporate several of these. Now, as soon as you do that, as soon as you incorporate several events into the same assessment, you no longer have the ability to really discern where they performed well and where their weaknesses are. So it makes it a ton more difficult for a practitioner to filter through it, but at least they will be exposed to those different modalities. Know that you think they are important and maybe we can do it in a way that's a little bit more fun because they're all doing the workout together and get to compete to see who finishes first or gets the most reps or whatever. It may be worth considering designing a couple quote unquote benchmark workouts that they could do. And then they could like track their performance on it over time and compare it to their buddies. I think, yeah, because the problem around how do you create something that you can share with people that are scattered to the winds, like that is that one is very easily solvable because there's stuff like we mentioned some different apps, like. And so it's, for me, like that's the easier one to get my head around is if you just create a really cool ecosystem of human performance and this is something that you can do by yourself like because the tech becomes the force multiplier piece like hey i've I've built you know 10 different programs this one is for folks that want to improve strength this one is more of an endurance folk like that's very easy to do then the hurdle is like okay well then how do you make that um accessible is it is there some centralized place that folks can go to get like the access code or download the thing or whatever the more challenging piece and the more resource intensive piece for me is like, how do you get to that point where now you've got like, I'm a reservist. I'm, you know, like we mentioned again, Canada, I can log into my reservist app, whatever we call it. And I have my dashboard and on my dashboard, I can see which of these health metrics, you know, which ones have I done? Am I red or green on those? Um, how do I stack up against however many hundreds or dozens or thousands of other reservists on the physical metrics, you know, cause I'm looking at these tests and like, let's say we do have a mile run and my time is seven minutes. Like, is that red, yellow, or green relative to everybody else? And there's, you know, you can, like we mentioned the floating averages, like that's pretty easy to build. So it'd be cool to log in and see that and know, okay, based on how I performed on this thing last time I did it, I need to prioritize, um, you know, my aerobic capacity and my, you know, insert X, Y, Z, my lower body strength. And then from there I can go to the programs that you built out and I can do that. And then next time I check into my unit, arguably I'm, I'm in a better place because I've been able to track this and, and quote unquote, play this game for the, the one year, two years, whatever that I've been, that I've been out. There's a lot of challenges in creating that environment. There's a lot of folks out there that do it, but it again, it becomes a little bit expensive and resource prohibitive. So that goes kind of back to your original point of like, how do you convince leadership to to buy in on this? What's the 
what's the return on investment? Is it avoiding the news story that says the guys can't get up the mountain and like we failed the mission? Or is there actually something in place here where we can show cost savings? We can show that, hey, in, investing, I don't know, I'll make up a number, $100,000 in this software ecosystem that allows any reservist anywhere to log in, see where they're at on these different metrics. Are injuries decreasing? Are 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 we spending less money on boom, boom, boom? Is the negative publicity around some of the statistics that Alex mentioned, like are those going down? So I don't know. That's a little bit of a, like a utopian um, vision maybe because that would be really sick. Um, but I think if that's kind of the direction that you're wanting to go in, it's now a question of walking that back and figuring out like, okay, what's step one? Is it is it just building a couple of cool programs and then advertising that amongst the reservists that I know, just getting people started? Or is it building that into a brief for leadership? That's my monologue. <laughs> that's the that's the exact question, you know, when I was I was basically I wrote it down in a different way, but I was like, how do I argue essentially what I like our version of H2F here, but from you know the the deductive versus the ampliative kind of I can't tell them for sure that with this with this system that kids are going to want to be fighters now i can't right that's impossible for me to know that but i have the punch if if you get out as a fighter like the government you know you're, you're part of your unit they track your health and your fitness and you go to this place in an ideal situation yeah we would have like a because i'm a because i'm a firearms instructor also we have what is called the center for i forgot the translation but basically that's where the military now takes all the reservists to do their urban fighting indoor houses there's only one place two places in israel where you can shoot indoors this was one of them the government realized they had a bunch of soldiers that never shot inside of a house um which is i don't know if you guys ever got a chance to shoot inside a house you can't it's way harder than shooting anywhere else because you can't hear and you have to work in a team it's really difficult um, so they bought this place and they invested millions into bringing now every reservist in the military, um, has to go and sh do the shoot house. They have to run through that training. It's mandatory. Everyone has to do it. And while you're there, you go through a full like simulator of, uh, of, uh, first aid for injured guys. It's really cool training. And it's all in one day you get there at eight in the morning and you're home, you get home by six in the evening and you do that all in one day. So my idea was like, why doesn't this exist for fitness right like we have the same guys and they they treat you know shooting guns and walking to rooms as like oh this is the most this is the limiting factor of our reservists this is why they're not ready and it's like no these guys can't do push-ups <laughs> they they, can, they can't even put on the vest they, they cannot walk upstairs i have them do a one kilometer walk to a building and try to take over that building and they have to stop in the middle because some guy is just not not functioning he's not doing it and uh so in my opinion, as an instructor, being there on the ground and having to train these guys, I saw the limiting factor was health and fitness. It wasn't some technical aspect of their ability to fight. It was always the same. It was always some previous injury. I don't really care the motivation, the motivation piece of that, or they're just not fit. I think part of this comes back to the politics of like training soldiers and like the dollars of it and all those things. Because in a lot of cases, it comes down to like who is willing to promise senior leaders that they can fix the problem fast, right? And so like it's easier to promise that I can fix your urban combat marksmanship problem in one day than it is to promise that I can fix your health and fitness problem in one day. And so they're going to throw money at the thing that they can execute now and see results now. And it's a lot harder with the fitness thing and it gets a lot fuzzier. Like I'll, I'll give the example. I like for my reserve job, I now go, I connect with battalions around the country and talk to them about 
health and fitness. And I've settled on like, I've, I've talked about this on the podcast a little bit before, but there are three domains of learning. There's cognitive where you learn facts and patterns and all that kind of stuff that you do in a classroom. There's psychomotor where you learn to either manipulate tools, which would include shooting or manipulate your own body, which would include like getting coached on the various movements you would do in exercise. And then there's the third domain, which is affective, where you start to incorporate things into your identity or learn to care about things or value things. And I am absolutely convinced it's probably true in the active component too, but especially for reserve by far, the most important thing is whether you care because whether you care is going to determine whether you put time towards that outside of the one day or two days a month that we have you, or in your case, the couple of days, every couple of years you have them. And there's only so much you can change in those couple of days. Right. So like most of the classes I give recently, I talk about affective focused things. I talk about the sickness, wellness, fitness continuum, and how being fit is your buffer against injury, illness, and death. I talk about social determinants of health, how your own health behaviors, your choices about food, your choices about exercise, smoking, those kind of things have twice as much impact as the medical care you have access to. I talk about like the relative importance of like mindset and sleep and things like that beyond just the physical training you do. Like I, I don't necessarily like put people through a particular workout because I know that's only going to change so much if they don't do it again ever. I try to like get things stuck in their brain so they'll be thinking about this next time they're deciding what to do with their time. I mean, that's awesome. That's exactly what I feel. I'm I'm trying to get across to the the command and like I said, they're like, oh, that's great, do something. <laughs> but it also, you know, I don't want to see what you had to say, Drew, but before I forget that. I basically had to redefine readiness, right? Because when I talked to you, we talked about, well, you guys define readiness as deployable and what does deployable mean exactly to an American military? I was like, that's the question, essentially, like how do you guys actually, if you can, whatever you can tell me, like what is deployable versus not deployable? What would be an example of a not deployable person? And then maybe that would help me kind of define, go to my command and tell them we have to decide at the end of the day that some people are deployable and some aren't because some guys just really shouldn't be given that that responsibility to go out into combat so i'll i'll try and do this without getting like too far into the weeds there's a lot of things that contribute so there's there's two versions of readiness there's unit level readiness and that depends on how proficient they are in the various mission essential tasks the unit has been given have they done collective training on it and how long ago was that collective training and what percentage of the soldiers participated in that collective training those things combine to tell you whether the unit is like trained and ready on a particular mission set then there's the individual soldier readiness, which is is primarily driven by medical things. Um, like certain medical conditions make you non-deployable. Uh, it gets a little fuzzier when you get into fitness and body composition because um, there are things that commanders can like assume risk on if they want to and still deploy the soldier. Um, but But fitness and body composition both play in as well. Um, frustratingly, most of medical readiness is just, have you had that screening within the requisite number of months that you're required to, right? So like every 12 to 15 months for various things, you have to go in for dental, you have to go in for your physical, you have to go in for whatever. Um, in some cases, things will be identified during those. Like if you have a significant dental condition, the dentist will say, okay, you are this category and you're not deployable until we fix that thing. Because like historically med medical evacuations for like dental emergencies are a huge pain in the ass for the military if they're deployed somewhere far away with no dentist. Um, but 
in a lot of cases, and I, I get frustrated about this, are especially since COVID, our annual physical has become very much a check the box paperwork kind of thing. Because uh, during COVID, they started allowing people to do their physicals over the phone. And it just got more and more like, all right, cool. You fill out the paperwork. You did the phone call. You're ready to go. Not a conversation about your actual health. But the idea of it is it is supposed to detect like in that conversation, if you do have like a serious condition, it's supposed to come up and then you would be flag like it would be identified. They would determine whether that limits your deployability and you'd get the appropriate care. Whether that happens, a little fuzzier, but that's the idea. Yeah, I was going to say like readiness is basically a make-believe construct within a bigger make-believe. Like the different branches have put different hurdles in place. Whereas if you don't meet those hurdles, i.e., like Alex mentioned, you haven't gone to the dentist in a certain number of days, you're now not ready by definition of what we described as ready. But like if shit hit the fan, like you're going to go to war. And I would imagine that like for you guys, especially not necessarily in a constant state of, of war, but like you mentioned, just growing up around this environment, like it's a little bit of a different conversation. So it's less to me about I don't know, like readiness is such a weird buzzword these days. I, I think what you what you should aim to do with this type of stuff is again, to me, it comes back to com- comparing you to your peers such that you're not like readiness is is to, is you're you're ready just by virtue of the fact that you're walking, talking, breathing, can point your gun in the general direction of the bad guy and pull the trigger. You're like, cool, you're going. But then how do we optimize? That and I hate using the word optimize because it's so cheesy. But how do you put something in place that inspires folks to say, okay, like it's not a question of whether I can go or not, but I'm I'm read on this particular test by virtue of this floating average. I want to do certain things that will get me green. Because when you start to define readiness as deployability or not deployable, and and we talked about like commanders assuming a certain amount of risk. I don't know if it's the same for you guys, but like. It's all fun and games until it, like it's time to deploy. And then from what I've seen, at least, like that's when commanders are saying, yeah, I'll take whatever risk. Like I need to take as many people as I can. So the readiness conversation kind of goes out the window, if that makes sense. We, we do have a problem, though, uh, in the reserve component in particular. They, whenever you need to like deploy a set number of soldiers, you basically have to activate two or three times that number of soldiers because you're going to find out when they show up that like some are not ready <laughs> they're not ready. and and that's a serious issue and i'm i'm sure you run into similar problems like you said like they're they're in the reserve they're there on paper but they can't accomplish the mission you need them to be able to do so that's a whole separate issue where you're like combining units that didn't train together to go on the same deployment because they're not as ready as they should have been yeah i think that that's a that's one of the biggest differences between us is this you know, for us to deploy, it's get on a bus for an hour, right? It's, <laughs> like, it's, not, it's not necessarily like they, they can get us from home to the meat grinder in like, that, like two seconds. So for Israel, that's that's why I'm so passionate about this project, because I didn't even realize it was like that. I kind of assumed that there was something in place for reservists. Like there would be something for me when I got out. I kind of just thought that it was, yeah, obviously they're going to make sure that, you know, I'm healthy and I work out and I can still shoot well, but the second you get out, you're kind of just like, oh, shit, no, that's all up to me. And then, you know, the army blames the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Health blames the army. And it's this this back and forth. And then within the unit itself, like as an example, my team had training not too long ago and our team leader, our team commander didn't show up because he had a test. 
in in college, which is, you know, understandable. Like you have a test, you kind of have to go, even though there's a rule that says that your professor has to push your test if you have reserve duty, no matter what. Right? That's a rule here. But he chose to to go to his test instead of get that, you know, use that use that as an advantage. So it kind of shows that even within the command, there's a lack of motivation to to be there and and take the guys through training and make sure that people are showing up. And so that's why I'm, I'm coming to you guys for help to develop a system that takes that into account. Like that's one of our variables we're dealing with is getting this command to be invested in making sure these guys are ready. Like you're the team leader. That's technically your job that your team would be ready. That's what I would assume. And everyone in my unit, which is, you know, there's, there's a really cool stuff about injuries in the commander's course and in the IDF. Like everyone in our unit does the sergeant's course, does a commander course. And everyone comes out of that with some kind of injury. I had a heat stroke during that course. <laughs> my other friend rolled his ankle. Another one broke it, like tore his MCL. Everyone comes out of that with some kind of injury because it's nonstop, non-sleeping combat drills. But that's just a small example of how, how the, you know, the command isn't really, you know, if they're not invested in this the way you would think that they'd want to be. Does that makes sense? Kind of like what Drew said, the upper command, yeah, hell yeah, let's do this. And then the lower command is like, leave me alone. I got tests. So, <laughs> that's can't make um, it. I got to test. There's a, there's a question in there. So, <laughs> if if we had the solution to that problem, we would be doing a lot better uh, financially than we currently are. I think. Um, but I think it reinforces the importance of like seeking ways to make it something they want to do, which is what I was talking about, both with the affective domain stuff and with like maybe a benchmark workout type of thing that like requires a limited amount of equipment and you could like test yourself randomly when you're not at drill and then like do it as a competitive event when you are at drill that that might add an element of like making this thing a little more fun than otherwise and if it's a little more fun maybe they're gonna be less resistant to it i don't like and you can like sneak assessments into that in an effective way so i don't know is there and this might come completely out of left field and take us down a different, but is there a way where, you know, when you show up for your reserve duty, all you are responsible for from a testing standpoint is these job specific assessments you've created, just these three metrics. Because my thought, the reason I asked that is because the three K ruck with 40% body weight under 60 minutes, like within that standard, there's a lot of physical requirements that you have to be able to meet that would, I think, drive behaviors towards some of the physical metrics you've created. And by virtue of doing that would allow you to eliminate some of those from this formal screening process, if that makes sense. So like you may not need to test the mile or the aerobic shuttle or the 300, or if you can do the 3K. And then from there, you could make the case to command about like a pass fail, ready or not ready, because you can't do these three, you know, whatever tests you choose for this job specific component. But like, instead of trying to cast this really wide net that captures all of these metrics, you just take the ones that matter the most, which I would argue would be the job specific ones, really prioritize those when you show up to duty under the assumption that, hey, by by focusing on these things, you will have done the requisite training to meet that standard. And then it becomes very easy for for you or whoever within this program you're creating to build the training that allows you to succeed at those tests. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I just, I think that was one of the big things I wanted to put to you guys and get your critique on was that, you know, like you said, like I said in the beginning was I'm not 
and maybe this is a mistake as a coach, but I wasn't really planning on using these metrics to program for the individual. Like we said, it was more of setting a, co a competitive environment for you versus your team. Like, can you do a pistol squat? Basically, like, can you push your foot length times two? Because that's what the FMS thing they do. And it's a cool little board and you just have to push it. And something that they can do at home while they're watching TV, you know, something they can't compete against each other who can do more pistol squats, right? That was, it was more of a, these are aspects of fitness I want you guys to know about. I want you guys to to think about and and think about training. And it's not necessarily like, and because I can. I can't even have a test to say you're, you're not going to be able to show up, right? Like I said, like I, everyone is deployable in the end. So it's not a, a pass or fail. It's more like this is for you. And, and this is, a, you know, how I, I phrase it in my head. I put it in my head after after reading, you know, some Dave Grossman stuff is that, these guys are essentially what he calls the, the sheepdogs of our society. Like the reservists, especially the, the guys who are the SF who came out of the special forces. They're the most highly trained ones in the Israeli army. I'm not going to bash on any units in the army, but most of them suck. I got to tell you the truth. Like most of them do not, when it comes to fighting wise, they just, they're, they're great guys, but they, yeah, the, the standards are super low because I got an opportunity to teach them, teach them. And I tell them basic fundamentals of marksmanship. And they're looking at me like I'm speaking English and that's what in that situation. So, <laughs> with, <laughs> that was good i like that like, yeah i was going there uh so you know i'm trying to get this idea across and packaging it into one whole and, and that's why i loved when i saw the h2f thing i was like holy shit they already do this they have the spiritual part of it like you know you have a certain responsibility to defend the people you, you you're around and not only that it's like just a being a, a able-bodied man or woman it's just that you you were trained to do that that was your job they let you go but it doesn't mean that it's no longer your job and getting kind of reminding them of that reminding them you should be proud to be a reservist you should be and 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 like you said like basically trying to create a system an ecosystem that would let that kind of i forgot the word in english but sprout prosper i don't know like kind of mm -hmm. you know yeah, plant yeah. a seed in israeli society that it's good to be a reservist it's good to be a sheepdog and now there's a way to do it it's not just that it's good like here's the way to do it um and that's what i was putting to you guys so it's not necessarily you know, oh, the 300, the, the shuttle run is like, oh, I need to know their anaerobic threshold or something. That's like, I don't really care, to be honest. I just want them to know that you should be able to do a sprint and not pass out. You should be able to do some push-ups, like the bare minimums, the bare minimums. And that's how I was kind of wanting you guys to critique this, this, this format of thinking, oh, this is more of a system than it is a way, assessments for programming. It's kind of not using these, maybe what they're supposed to be, but trying to use them for something else if that if that's okay no i, I actually kind of really like it because you're you're doubling down on that third component of what assessment should do which is show them what you care about show them what matters like expose strengths and weaknesses things like that i would encourage you even if you're not going to use it and this is like helping me realize some like content i could produce it'd be really helpful for our soldiers through the acft but what you could do is take these events and say like if you struggled with this event this is the kind of training you should be doing to address that. Or like some of the events are a little bit more complex. Like, like one of the classic ones I end up talking to people about for our test is the sprint drag carry because it combines multiple things at the same time. And it's sometimes hard to filter out what the soldier's weakness is. And so teaching them that like, hey, if what is kicking your ass is that your quads are on fire during the drag and you can't move quickly for the full distance, then you start working on lower body strength, lower body muscular endurance. Here are some exercises for you. Here are some rep ranges, that kind of thing. 
versus if you're a big, strong guy and the sled's not that big a deal, it's not slowing you down that much. It's just that you're completely winded by the time you're halfway through. Here's the training you need to do. Here are some example workouts for you. And just maybe it's a flow chart. I don't know what it is, but like showing them that you're not just making them do these things just to make them suffer for a little bit. You're doing these things to say, Hey, these are the components of fitness that will matter when it's time to do your job for real. And because you've taken these assessments, I can help you shape the kind of workouts you can be doing in your free time to help you perform on these kind of things. So it's not directly you're programming for them, but it does arm them with enough information to train themselves a little better. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I think you were spot on and that you don't necessarily need to build a test that drives programming specifically because then you're right, it becomes pretty complicated. It's hard to manage. But to Alex's point, if you don't have some component of that, even if it's just informative, like you mentioned, hey, you've found the the run component to be hard. Here's some things you should do. Like, I think that's going to go a long way in creating this cultural shift that you're talking about because ultimately that's that's a marketing move. Like you have to market that to people. And the best way to do that is to create carrots. And the carrot in this case is going to be, Hey, you sucked at that thing, or you want to improve that thing. Like here's some stuff that we, as the Israeli defense force reserve component are providing to you to, to do better on that thing. And once they, you know, revisit whatever test and they do better, that's going to go a really long way to creating the buy-in and the cultural shift that you want. Because if you just leave it at the, at the, test and this is why i think we keep coming back to this question about like should we program or not program like if you just leave it at the test i think you you don't you don't create the behavioral change that says hey i did the thing that they told me to do okay cool so what well the so what is we've decided that these metrics are important from like a national defense conversation and you did this this and this really well these were okay these were your poorest events here's training that we think makes sense for you to make these less poor. Like that, that in and of itself is probably the quote unquote solution that you're looking for. And then it, it becomes, okay, how do we facilitate that? Is it technology? Is it, you know, we build a website or whatever. How do we get that information out to the masses so that they have some sense of ownership? It's easy to replicate. It doesn't require a lot of equipment. Um, I, I think that's the kind of, that to me, when I saw the stuff that you reached out about, that was kind of the direction that I think you were looking to go in. I'll add to really briefly that something I see militaries around the globe struggle with, especially in the human performance domain, is collecting data and then having that data only flow upward, where like it's never clear to the people who participated in the data collection who did your assessment what the point was. Mm-hmm. And and that's something you want to avoid at all costs because then they're just going to feel like guinea pigs. And they feel like guinea pigs a lot just by the nature of military service. If you can make it feel like it adds value for them as well, they're much more likely to care about it. And I think too, on the back of that, like as a starting point, you know, what we've been talking about, but once you can start to show things like, hey, we we created this, you know, this ecosystem and compliance is super high. We're getting a lot of hits. People are downloading. Like, There's a lot of activity around it. Then you can start to have more, what I would call like H2F type conversations with leadership of like, Hey, maybe we should look at hiring people. Like maybe we should put some funding towards this. Maybe we should. But I think that until you can show that regardless of the test that you choose, like, but until you can show that people are engaging with it, you're going to be hard pressed to say, you know, we should throw, resources at this 
versus if you go more the grassroots option, which I know is kind of annoying because it takes a little bit longer. Um, it's a lot of DIY, but it, it will be super powerful when you step into that brief and you can say, Hey, like I've got X many thousands of people engaged in this platform that we put together as kind of an experimental concept. If we do, you know, what some of these other allied services are doing in terms of staffing equipment, whatever, like we can take this from one to a thousand. That would be kind of my order of events, if that makes sense. No, that's great. I wrote that down too. Um, I think it's a little unrelated, but I have to ask this question because it's something that my time here just living in Israel. So just also something I didn't really say before, but I did my uh, personal trainer certification with the American College of Sports Medicine. And before the ACSM, before that, I was like, this is easy. I'm going to do this. And then I was, you know, like, how, how it's going to be pretty easy. Honestly, I thought it was going to be easy. All of a sudden, I was exposed to this whole world of of sports science and physiology and all that like stuff I'd never learned in the military, which is, which has also got me pissed off. It's like, how did we not learn this? And then as a, as an instructor, like I had guys stress you and they never taught me how to calm guys down. The opposite, if anything, we taught guys to calm down after coming back from a sprint to shoot with uh, what they call on the shoot which is like a, a dog's breath. They teach them, they teach them to go and breathe really fast. And then, 10 like, down the line, I'm reading books now. I'm like, that's the exact opposite of what we want. <laughs> it's not the exact opposite of what we want. And uh, so that's just one example. So I, this leads me to the question, how big of a role does the NSCA play in H2F and and having instructors like the TSAC and, and you know, the CSCS, because it had some minimum, right? You have to have a degree. And it's like, you don't, we don't have these standards here. There is no NSCA type situation in Israel. And yeah, so how important is that? So... I'll take a whack at it because I'm a strength coach in terms of like what the requirements to be a strength coach, you have to have the CSCS. That's not from any sort of like governing body reasoning. Like, you know, to, to be a doctor, you, you like have to be board certified. Like it's simply because it's the biggest name in the industry and they've just decided that that's what it's going to be. And then, you know, we talk about like path dependency, like that's just what it is. So you have to have that to be a strength and conditioning specialist. And then on top of that, you can do like your TSAC or whatever and kind of add letters to your name. I do know, like, you know, you mentioned you guys don't have anything like that. The UK SCA has a similar setup. You can do the CSCS, I think, from abroad. And, and I think that that gets to the point we were making earlier of like, once you set this environment up within your own space, I mean, maybe you become the guy that designates what those requirements are going to be to be designated a, you know, whatever fitness master title you make up. But the the short answer is is that it's required. Yeah, I'll I'll take a whack at it uh, with an attempt to not get fired for the way I answer it. Um, <laughs> oh, please go on. Part of the challenge. So this is that that's my way of saying that it is something we are still actively working on. We have not cracked the code and. There, there are requirements to get hired as a strength coach within the system. And there is a book of doctrine, right? There is our FM 7-22. But that doesn't mean that if you ask five strength coaches the same question, that you're going to get the same answer from all five of them. And that's a challenge we face in terms of kind of standardizing the education and to what degree do we standardize it? To what degree do we allow people to keep doing kind of what they prefer and what makes sense in their environment? And that's a, a tough balance. It's tough because officially speaking, 
no one agency in the army owns fitness. There's organizations that have like slightly different views on all sorts of things. And like everybody has their own personal opinions and it's really complicated and the science changes all the time. And that's just a, a frustrating thing to get around. So I don't want to pretend like we have the answer, but I think the, the NSCA's role to date, and then it's, it's informal, right? Like technically like they, the, the NSCA doesn't have to approve content that the army teaches to soldiers. It just approves the content that the strength coaches are taught when they certify. But by having like a, a fairly common language that tends to come out of NSCA type of content, because that's where the coaches were trained and we mirror some of our content off of it, it does get us a few steps closer to that, but it's very much an iterative process. I don't know if you've seen like the meme or whatever, right? But like the hardest thing about fighting the Americans in the war is that it doesn't matter if you know their doctrine because they're not going to follow it anyway. So <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's challenging to get that all locked in, you know, and we're never going to actually solve that problem completely, but. I was just, I was wondering how you guys saw that because I've, I've want to build a team of other people and I'm trying to convince my friends to, cause now they're deciding what to study. I'm like, go study psychology, go study, you know, nutrition. <laughs> and uh, cause I'm a little older than everyone also, uh, cause I drafted a little later. So I kind of have that older kind of tell them what to do. And, and so I'm asking you guys how you thought about the NSCA because I mean, one, I would never would have, I don't think I ever would have found out about you guys without the coaching podcast. Cause I was just deep into that, looking at everyone, our military is something related and just listening to every single one I could. And also just having these minimum requirements of what you have to know to be able to deal with this specific population. It's not just, they are general pop, but you, we do have a lot more of that, you know, their, their needs are way different, right? You guys talk about this all the time, but uh, that's why I wanted to ask you about the NSCA. Was like, is this possible? Would that, how much harder would it be without them? Cause that's where I'm at right now. I was like, I don't have an NSCA here. I don't have, a group that's kind of working with specific instructors, setting standards for what it means for this population. I pulled everything from from the U.S. Basically, I did my CSEC with NSCA and learned everything from that. Basically, that wasn't my own personal experience in the military. Um, that's all I want to know. You guys think about the NSCA, and so I just want to add another question, if that's all right. How come yeah, there, there's never single limb assessments? Right, because I was thinking, wow, one arm push-ups hard. Like that shit's hard. It is not an easy thing to do. It's pretty, you know. I'm really strong with two hands, but you put me on one hand, and now all of a sudden my shoulder sucks. And <laughs> and the same thing with my squat. My squat's good, but my single leg stance, I, I cannot pistol squat. I can't pistol squat, and that's why like this has got to be in there. Something that Greg Cook says, I love. He's like, I didn't design the FS, FMS for me. You know, it wasn't something I could pass. And I thought about that a lot. Very really now with the the movement and all that kind of stuff. He does like capoeira kind of movement thing, moving around. And so they're really into single limb. So what do you guys think about the single limb, the lack of it at least? I'll let Drew go first. Yeah. And, and I, I put an asterisk on this because I'm not an athletic trainer or a physical therapist. And I'm sure when we talk about screens and assessments, like those folks might be screaming at their radio. But um, to me, it comes down to like, training time. So a single leg squat, for example, is very skill dependent. Um, and, and you'll hear, you know, like plyometrics is a good example. Like you'll hear people say like, Oh, you shouldn't do, uh, uh, you know, rebounding plyometric, whatever, until you can double body weight, like blah, 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 blah. Which is kind of, to me, one of those like clickbaity statements that people make. And it, it takes the conversation away from what's actually relevant. So 
you know, back to the single leg squat, if, if that became a metric that was of, of value to an organization, my first question would be a very scrutinous, like, why have you, have you decided that the outcome of taking that much training time and practice to be able to effectively do that thing is so worth it that we've distracted or that we've taken away from literally everything else that we could have been doing. Say it takes, and I'm making this up, like it takes somebody a hundred hours to be able to master a single arm pushup. Could we have been spending those hundred hours doing something else that will drive better outcomes? I don't know the answer to that, but I, for me, at least from the strength coach perspective and the, the time in the gym being very, very important, the, the return on investment may not necessarily be there. That's not to say that that's not a good test. Um, and, and I think you could make the point that like being able to do that and being able to do a lot of this, you mentioned a lot of the movement stuff, like there's goodness in that. And you could make the argument that somebody that can do that is probably more quote unquote robust than somebody who can't do that. But once it becomes a tested metric, you know, it's, it's going to drive a, a lot of decision-making around training time. And for me, it, it may not be worth it, if that makes sense. I'll provide a slightly different answer, and I'm going to try and keep it short. Well, first off, I love Ido Portal's stuff and the whole movement thing and all that. I went through a, a big phase of body weight stuff, whatever. Dude, he is so I, I love that guy too, but some of the stuff he says, it's like, what? oh, he's a he crazy person. Said? It's fine. Don't worry about the, <laughs> don't worry about what comes out of his mouth. Just worry about what his body can he's do. He's from Israel, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's Israel. Do you he's know? from El Tadel, where, where I live right now. Yeah. Oh, great. So you guys are probably best buddies. And here we are. Like, talking about <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, no, at all. But I do I actually work with his coach. Nice. So, what I'll say in terms of like, why are all the assessments bilateral or whatever? I think one is the outsized influence of powerlifting over strength and conditioning in general is going to be a big part of the answer. And that's just something the community has to deal with and reckon with, whatever. And the second one is something I didn't really kind of figure out until last year. It's really frustrating because it's, it speaks to the way like science doesn't apply perfectly to real life, but like our squared values come from how closely a cluster of dots patterns itself along a line, basically, right? Like short version of, and then like our squared values are determined, are used to determine, does the thing you're assessing explain the thing you're trying to measure? That's just like, we're getting into statistics stuff for a second. It's not that relevant, but the problem with that is that if there is a steep cliff where certain people do zero, and then suddenly you get into one, two, three, four, five reps, like a pistol squat, like a huge population is going to get zero. And then you're going to hop up to the, the population that can do one, two, three, four, five. We ran into the exact same problem with the leg tuck on the ACFT. There's a huge population that can do zero and then it jumps up. And then like, then you start to follow a line. That the fact that there's a large cluster of people who can't even do one of whatever the assessment is means your R squared value goes to shit really quickly because you have a cluster of dots that don't follow the line on the graph. Does that make it a bad assessment? Absolutely not. But the statisticians who don't actually have to apply it in real life will say that it's a bad assessment because the R squared value looks bad. That's really annoying. It's just a figment of the way math works. It's not, it doesn't mean it's not like useful and shouldn't be encouraged. I'm a huge fan of incorporating more and more single leg training. I think it would be relevant to include single leg assessment, but it's just hard because you run into problems like that. You're also a huge fan of the leg tug. I am. 
<laughs> that was my main and pretty much my sole and only motivation from the the MCF CS, where you have to push that slider box uh, your foot length times two. So whatever your foot says, so it's relative to the person and their foot length. And the same is true for the push-up. Like they don't have to have to go all the way down. They just have to be able to do a minimum of their own foot length. I don't remember exactly why it's double your foot length though. That's embarrassing, but I shouldn't know that. I forgot why it's exactly double your foot length. Um, but the idea was exactly like what you said, Alex. And, and that's my, that was my whole, I wanted to get your critique on, on, on these things specifically was that this is that teaching opportunity to teach them that, you know, a bench is like this, but you should take two dumbbells and go one arm at a time. And, you know, you should look for, I forgot the word when you don't have the same amount of strength in both sides. Imbalance. Imbalance. Yeah. An imbalance in strength or, you know, whether it's, a, and so you have it in the legs and you have it in the upper body. So I was thinking more of, I don't, you know, the, the number is great. If they can push their twice their foot length, awesome. But that's more of an opportunity for them to show them, hey, you should think about, you know, split squats. You should think about uh, using the dumbbells, like we said, using an assessment, more of a teaching opportunity than an actual assessment of something. Yeah, it, it's it's also a reason. This is like a, a tangent, and we're we're already probably over on time, so we should be moving towards a a conclusion anyway. But I think a a part of the problem with unilateral stuff too. I think this is a personal opinion. I think balance is like super undervalued in strength and conditioning because it is extremely trainable. It's just difficult to quantify. And like as soon as you incorporate unilateral stuff, you start to incorporate balance, which can like if if all you're trying to do is measure force output, a balance issue means you're collecting data that's not as clean as you wanted. So you might not like it for an assessment, but that doesn't make it bad for training. I would love people to train things that make them have to get better balance, whatever. Well, the thing I was going to add on that is, you know, whether you test it or not is part of the question, but I think you could, you could address it through the, the programming side of things where you could, you could program a lot of unilateral type stuff, simple things that don't require a ton of skill, you know, like we mentioned split squats or single arm shoulder, whatever. And by doing that, you could expose people to those weaknesses and then drive the behavior change versus because again, we mentioned this a while ago, like as soon as something becomes tested, you create a whole stigma around the tested movement. Whereas if it's just that the training itself, by virtue of being good training, introduces a lot of unilateral stuff. Because like, that's what I do with folks that I work with. You can you can expose some of that to them. And, and ultimately, I would argue, arrive at the same the same learning goal, which is to say, hey, this is important. If you practice it and get better at it, you will become better as an athlete. Cool. All right. Have we, are there any unanswered questions? Because I don't know if we've solved the problem, but we've certainly gotten the ball rolling. And certainly the first of probably several conversations I think is, is off to the races. Are there any unanswered questions that you have for us or that we have for you? Um, if it's, if you guys, I don't want to take more of your time, but what would you do? Right. Like now that you guys kind of have the situation, I'm at the cultural piece. Like what, would, like what assessments would you do real quick, physical health and job specific? I would not necessarily change the health ones all that much. I think that those are good. You know, it's, it's going to be a question of like, how, do, how do you, how do you run those? How do you collect the data? For me, the physical ones, I'm always going to be a fan of less is more. And I think, you know, we mentioned the mile run as being a good one. I would leave, you know, something like the rope climb in there from a skill standpoint, I would look at adding a strength component because of the reasons we talked about just creating the behavior change around having that type of training in your repertoire. 
I wrote agility down and I put a question mark next to it because to me, the agility conversation is a weird one. Like you're not going to dodge bullets. And so like, what is the point? Counter argument would be it's important to move quickly in different directions because you're more of like a quote unquote athlete. So, okay, fair enough. Um, you know, you could leave that in there. I think the broad jump is a good one. And that one is a very easy one to put um, scoring behind and kind of do that racking and stacking that we talked about. So, you know, for me, it's it's mile run, rope climb, some kind of strength component, maybe a deadlift, the agility piece and and the broad jump. And then the job specific ones, I, I wouldn't change what you have there. And I think that those, like we mentioned, are kind of your your bread and butter in terms of doing in a in a organized environment when you're checking in or what have you. And if if those three become kind of the the gold standard or the thing that you need to perform well at, then I think that drives a lot of the conversation behind the other testing components, but that that's what I would do. I'll add some, some brief. I'm not, I'm honestly not going to disagree with Drew on any of that really, but I will add a couple of notes. I will, I'll say on the health metrics, I would not tie them to scores, um, especially if they're not going to like result in any administrative action or anything like that. I would just have them be, Hey, we have, we can now track this month to month or year to year. You're either improving or getting worse. We're not going to compare you to other people necessarily. Cause like, like height to weight is going to, it's going to depend and like waist to hip and all those things are going to depend heavily on somebody's build. It's not, it doesn't do great things to start comparing them to each other. So for the health metrics, I would use them mainly as like, I would use them mainly as reference values to track progress. Then for the physical metrics, I agree with what Drew said. I would also consider two additional things. One, I would consider developing some kind of like flow chart for how to determine somebody's what they should do for training based on how they did. Cause I think in the physical part, it's okay to tie it to scores. Like you want this to get competitive and it's less tied to complicated personal things, but I would, I would have some kind of tool where they can look at how they do on an event and then like know what to do to fix it. Um, and then, Oh, the other thing I was gonna have, we already talked about, which was that like the possibility of like creating a few, benchmark workout type of things that are a little bit more fun focused rather than traditional assessment style. Yeah. I think that's it. I would consider, I still think, and I don't know which ones I haven't done my own like triage on it yet. Maybe dialing it back to a smaller total number of assessments here. Cause it is kind of a lot, but all of them you're on there for a good reason. So it's a little tough to triage. My version only had five. There you go. <laughs> Just do five. Cool. Uh, five works, yeah. I'm sure we'll continue this conversation, but for now, I think we can stop recording and we'll say, Guy, thank you for coming on and one, talking with us, but then two, like literally problem solving on air. Uh, so I would actually throw out to people who are listening to this, and Alex, you can put this on the gram. Like, if any of the stuff that Guy's going through has like driven some thought, like direct that towards us and then we can direct that towards Guy. And as Leg Tuck Nation, we can collectively solve your problem. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Thanks, guy. Awesome. Awesome.